0: Welcome to Chapel of the Lake in Lake St. Louis, Missouri. The Chapel family is a multi-generational community of believers who gather weekly to worship and explore God's Word as we grow in our relationship with Jesus Christ. Join us now as Pastor Aaron McMillan opens the scriptures. A question for you, how do you feel about failure? I absolutely hate it. I've always avoided things that I didn't really think I would be good at. I quit piano in the second grade when I found out how much practice it was required. I quit baseball in the fifth grade because I realized I would never be able to hit. It came to High school sports, and on days that the team, whether it was soccer or lacrosse, were going to go to the weight room because it was raining or something like that, I would hop on the bus and go home because I didn't want people to know how weak I was. I've never lifted weights in my life, and yeah, I did play sports through some of college and high school. I just was always had this fear of, of failure or embarrassment. Um, this morning, first service, I was actually contemplating not coming up here because I was afraid of failing or bombing this sermon. Good news is people had good things to say, so hopefully you'll feel the same, probably because I'm about to embarrass myself. And so here we go. When I have a terrible memory uh, just etched in my mind, It's sixth grade, and I was never a very good student, and like I said, I didn't do things that I wasn't really comfortable doing. But for whatever reason, I found myself in a a class spelling bee, and I won. I'm like, that's great. Well, that turned into a whole school assembly spelling bee. And I'm like, okay, but like I said, I never studied, but I also am fearful of failure. But hey, I was one of the older kids in the school. I figured I'd do all right so I get up there and I get the first word it's like the warm-up word right the easy word to get everyone comfortable and so I spell it w-a-f-f-e-l waffle and as soon as the word came out of my mouth I knew I knew that I had spelled it wrong but it was too late it was over the I don't know if there was a bell or a buzzer buzzer I I wish they had dropped me through the floor because I just, you feel the lights and my, I knew my face turned bright red. I'm pretty sure my, uh, eyes welled up with tears and I just beelined it out of there. I committed to never ever spell in public again. But in reality, as I look back on it, that failure really wasn't that big of a deal. Sure, my sixth grade ego was hurt, but outside of that and Also, the emotional damage that I still experience every time I see a waffle. (laughs) Outside of those things, really, it it was not that big of a deal. And now I get to try to laugh through it when I tell people the story. But the stakes got a bit higher when it came to my first two years of college at Baylor University. I was an electrical engineering student. I was an Air Force ROTC cadet. I had dreams of flying jets. I also was playing club lacrosse. So my first year of actual, like, school didn't go so great. I was, I missed a full ride scholarship by two tenths of a grade point. And so coming home, After that first year, my parents weren't exactly pleased with me, but I convinced them, I committed, I was going to go back, I've, I've got a year under my belt, I will bunker down, study, commit to doing well, and all of the things. So I go back to Baylor, now it's the fall of my sophomore year, and what do I do? join the Friday night library study group. No. Be a little more disciplined in my study habits? No. I joined a fraternity (laughs) while still doing all the other things. And much to my parents' surprise, my GPA didn't go up. And so now I'm home. It's Christmas break. It's Christmas break. I'm three semesters in. My GPA is progressively going down. And they're like, what are you doing? We're spending tens of thousands of dollars. You've taken out loans to go to school, except it doesn't seem like you're going to school. But I was like, yeah, but I've got it now. I promise I am going to do better. I'm going to be seriously committed to this. And for some reason, they relented, and that was a mistake. (laughs) I, I did give it my best effort for at least the first two weeks of school. But by that point, I'm in my fourth semester of engineering school, and there's only so long that you can fake it, which is exactly what I had been doing for three semesters. And so two weeks in, I realized I can't do this. I am going to fail this program. So what do I do? Do I call my parents and say I have to withdraw? I was wrong? No. I just said, well, I got friends. I got things to do. I can go hang out with, with people. And then all of a sudden it was the last week of April, and I'm realizing I'm going to have to tell my parents what had happened. Well, the rest of the story basically is I got a B-plus in one of my classes that semester because my roommate was in it, and that's the one class I went to. I got an F in the remaining five classes I was taking that semester. (laughs) Yeah, I'll let you calculate that GPA. (laughs) (laughs) It was not good. I was now on academic probation, but it didn't matter because at that point, there was no way my parents were letting me go back. You see, that failure came at a much higher cost. Not only was my pride hurt, I had to suffer the humiliation of telling all my friends at school and people I knew that I couldn't come back. I'd also done so Pretty significant damage to the trust and relationship that I had with my parents that already wasn't on a great foundation when I left for school. Failure, especially when it's your fault, is painful. But it's not only just painful for you, it's painful to those around you. So if you're listening, mom or dad, I'm sorry. Here's why I bring all those embarrassing stories up about myself. Again, it's one thing to have your own ego bruised. Significantly worse to fail and hurt the people around you. But what happens when you fail God? Shouldn't the stakes be even higher when we are talking about living out our purpose in relation to the one who created us, who continues to sustain us? If we really sit back and think about it, is there anything more important than that? But my guess is as you're sitting there, you know that you failed God at some point in your life and maybe more than once. This knowledge can be paralyzing for the believer. The mistakes we've made, the sins we've committed, the times that we've blown up, that we've got angry, that we have doubted God. But I hope to bring you good news this morning. This message is for all the failures Out there like myself for anyone who has felt that they are not good enough, that who are tempted to think that they are too far gone, too big of a failure to be used by God and live a life of significance. And my guess is that description fits many of us here this morning. But thankfully, we're going to be encouraged by a man named Peter in the gospel of John. Peter had boasted in front of Jesus and the disciples that he would always stick by Jesus' side. He was willing to go to prison and even die with Jesus. He actually said out loud that while all the other disciples might fall away, he never would deny or walk away from Jesus. But if you've been following through our series in John, you know the story. Peter couldn't stay awake to pray. He follows Jesus in the shadows after his arrest. And then he denies Jesus, not once, not two times, but three times. And when the rooster crowed, and he locks eyes with Jesus, he burst into tears of grief. He had failed Jesus, his Lord his master, his teacher, he had failed Jesus. Could there be anything worse in the life of Peter? And so we're left with his hanging question. What's next for Peter? Is he done? Is there a path to restoration? Or is this the end of Peter the apostle? And you see, John could have ended the gospel with chapter 20, verse 30. He wrapped it up nice for us. Except that would have left us hanging about Peter and questions about the future of the church and the disciples. And so, John 21 serves as an epilogue. It ties up some of these loose ends and then gives us some anticipation moving forward. Both before his death and after, Jesus had told his disciples that he would meet them in Galilee. And so, the disciples have now traveled back to Galilee, at least seven of them, are in Galilee, but Jesus hasn't shown up yet. And so that's where John 21 begins. So we're going to move quickly uh, and just kind of walk through the text, making some observations along the way. So I encourage you just to have it open in front of you. So we're just going to read two or three verses at a time as we go. But uh, will you just join me with a quick word of prayer? Dear Lord, I pray that we would see you here this morning, That we would hear from you, that your word would transform our hearts and our minds, that we would see how this applies to us and see your love and your truth through your word here this morning. We pray in your name. Amen. John sets the stage. John 21, verse 1. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. That's also called the Sea of Galilee. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the Twin, Nathanael of Cana in Galilee, the son of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. So that makes all seven. Simon Peter said to them, "I am going fishing." They said to him, "Well, we will go with you." They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Not sure how long the disciples have been waiting in Galilee. But with Jesus still absent, Peter looks around and says, Well, I guess I'm just going to go fishing. I don't think that there's necessarily anything inherently wrong with what Peter's doing. And I don't think he's abandoning Jesus. I don't think he's just writing off his, his mission as a disciple. But you get this idea that they don't really know what they're supposed to be doing. And so they go back to what they've always known, which is fishing. Presumably, they're thinking, well, whenever Jesus comes, he'll tell us what to do. But in the meantime, we've got to eat. Here's our boat. Here's the sea. We're fishermen. Let's go catch some fish. But things don't go exactly as they had planned. You have seven experienced fishermen back on their home territory who fished all night long, but they didn't catch one fish. Verse 4. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, or guys, or dudes, it's like a colloquial term for guys you work with, um, do you have any fish? What would you catch? They answered him, no. He said to them, well, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. And now there you might be saying, oh yeah, I know this story when Jesus told them to throw the net out and they hauled in all these fish. Well, you might be thinking of this story, but more than likely the story that you're familiar with isn't in John 21, it's in Luke 5. Because Luke 5 is the calling of Peter and John and James, is Luke 5, 1 through 11. That happened three years earlier. In the same town, on the same lake, with the same guys, given the same command, finding the same result. First they had no fish, and then they had overwhelming amounts of fish. All after following the instructions from the same, but now resurrected, Jesus. So what's happening here? Well, Jesus was intentionally recreating the initial call of these disciples. Simon, James, and John had all abandoned everything to follow Jesus in Luke 5. But what would happen this time? What would happen now? Verse 7. The disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. John gets it. It clicks. Oh, man, I remember three years ago. Jesus, fish, so many. After fishing all night, not having any. It's the Lord. And Peter, oh, my goodness, you're right. Swan dive off the boat into the water. He doesn't care. He's like, I got to go. I need to find Jesus. This is Peter. He doesn't really think. He just acts. He grabs his cloak. He launches himself into the sea. And here is is why I think Peter hadn't abandoned Jesus, we learn that Peter still loves Jesus. Peter desperately wants to be with Jesus. Peter is excited to hear that the Lord has arrived. He immediately leaves the boat. He leaves the fish. He leaves his friends so they could do all the work. But we also learn an important truth about Jesus here. What we're about to find out is that Jesus is orchestrating all these events For Peter. He is once again reminding them about their inability and his ability. And so, as we're looking at this concept of restoration, what's going to happen to Peter? The first thing that we'll learn is that restoration always begins with grace. Restoration always begins with grace. We'll keep reading and make some connections. Verse 9. When they got out on land, They saw a charcoal fire in place, with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, "'Bring some of the fish that you have just caught.' So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, a 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, "'Come and have breakfast.' Now none of the disciples dared ask him, "'Who are you?' They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish.' This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Why did Jesus show up? He showed up for the disciples. He showed up for Peter. Why? Because he loved them. Because he knew them. Because he wanted to show them grace, which is what we'll continue to explore. So they get to the shore. They find Jesus already prepared with breakfast over a fire. The fish is being grilled to perfection. The sight of fresh bread, I'm sure, is a welcome sight after a long night of fishing. There are so many familiar elements in just this one scene. You already had the recreation of their initial call to follow Jesus. But he's sitting there with a loaf of bread and a fish, does that sound familiar? I, I, if I was there, I'm thinking about, man, do you remember that time that Jesus fed the 5,000 with just a loaf of bread and some fish? And, and and here he is once again serving the disciples. He brings them the fish and he brings them the bread just like at the Last Supper as he brings and serves his disciples They might have also recalled just not that long ago when Jesus appears from behind the locked doors and says, you got any fish to eat? He was doing all of this for the benefit of the disciples. But here you also see Jesus has an invitation to the disciples. He's inviting them to participate in what he is doing. He already has food for them. He doesn't need any of their fish. But he invites them, hey, go grab some of that fish you just caught. Bring it over to the fire. And so who acts? Peter. He just runs back to the boat, grabs the whole net, yanks it off, and brings it to Jesus. Jesus wasn't there because the disciples deserved it. He was there because he wanted them to know who he was, because he knew their heart despite their failures. And just in case some of you are wondering, What's the significance of 153 fish? Well, there are some interpreters like Augustine who thought that uh, since 153 is the sum of the numbers 1 through 17, this catch of fish points towards the number 17, which he reasoned was the Ten Commandments plus the sevenfold gifts of the Spirit. But then there's others who noted that if you take the Greek numerical system and how it uh, aligns with the Greek alphabet, 153 is the numerical value of the Greek words Peter and fish. There was another dude who, Jerome, who believed that there was 153 fish in the world. And this catch represents a full harvest of the entire world. Cyril of Alexandria thought that 100 stood for the Gentiles, 50 stood for Israel, and three stood for the Trinity. So now you're wondering, well, which one is right? Who got it correct? So I'm going to tell you what I think. And of course, I think I'm right. I think that these fishermen always counted their fish. It was a habit. They were fishermen. They were businessmen. They needed to know how much fish they caught so they could know how much profit they were going to make, how much they should take home and how much they should sell. So I think they recorded 153 fish because they caught 153 <laughs> fish. All that is bonus information. All just to say is I don't, let's not get caught up in making weird, the Bible say weird things when it doesn't. It just says 153. It's a lot. It was full. It was bursting. And you're seeing detail. And you're seeing intricacy. And you're seeing real life and real men. I think that's the significance. There was 153. This was a real event with real people. And yes, 153 real fish. That aside. At this point, the disciples realized, this is Jesus. They're not even going to ask they don't want to be offensive. I think like they, they know they don't need to verify, they don't need confirmation. But I also get the idea that this is a quiet breakfast. That they know like they've seen him twice, but Jesus has never directly addressed Peter. So I know for sure Peter was real excited when he came up to the shore, and obviously he launched himself into the sea so he'd go be by Jesus. But I think as he's Eating breakfast and everyone's kind of quiet, they're kind of just looking around at each other. Looking at disciple, looking at Jesus. I wonder what's gonna happen to you. I wonder what Jesus is gonna say about you. I wonder what Jesus is gonna say. What's he doing? They're just they're feeling like this moment is a little different. And I think they're right. Jesus has arrived to give them grace. But they're not exactly sure what that grace is going to look like. And what comes next is the most painful part of the restoration process. Restoration requires facing your failure. There is another parallel that Jesus had created during this breakfast. The disciples were gathered around a charcoal fire. Now, I don't know about you, but I love the smell of charcoal. I especially love cooking with charcoal. I just got a charcoal smoker like a year ago, and it's fantastic. haven't cooked fish on it yet, but when I do, I'm sure it will be good purely because it's just over charcoal that makes everything taste better. When I smell charcoal, it brings back just some good memories. When I I first started grilling Over charcoal, actually, my freshman year at Baylor, which may explain some things. We would grill in this little tiny Weber grill in the parking lot outside of our dorm, and we just say, Hey, come bring some stuff, and we'll start, we'll grill it for you. And that was like our Sunday afternoon hangout. It's still a good memory, just probably wasn't the best decision at the time. I think about grilling burgers on the beach of Pensacola. I think about uh, being out in the woods and and making a fire and eating s'mores and hanging out with friends. Like when I smell charcoal, like those are the memories that come flooding back. But I'm pretty sure I know at least one person, when they smelled charcoal, it didn't bring back happy memories. You see, there's a specific note here in John 21 that Jesus had built a charcoal fire. There's only one other place in the whole New Testament that you see charcoal fire mentioned. It's in John 18, which we just heard read on Easter. If you remember the setting for John 18, is the night of Jesus' arrest. And so John 18, verse 17, you'll know the scene pretty quickly. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. I think the smell of charcoal, seeing the charcoal fire would have brought back painful memories back into the mind of Peter no doubt he could remember warming his hands over the fire as he denied Christ not once but three times. He still remembers the look in Jesus' eyes as he heard the rooster crow. And so I could imagine Peter had just launched himself into the sea, swam as fast as he could, gets up on the beach, sees Jesus and breakfast, but then charcoal and fire. And now all of a sudden there's a little bit of hesitation. There's a little bit of quiet that adds to the uneasiness of the breakfast scene. So what happens next? Verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. So here Jesus, for the first time, speaks directly to Peter. And he's still in front of all the other disciples. But he chooses to use the name Simon, not Peter. And what that seems to indicate to me is that there's a question over disciple status, apostle status of Peter. I'm calling you Simon. I'm not sure if you're the rock that I gave you that name back in the beginning. I think Jesus also needed to do this publicly because Peter's denial was public. And remember, we're on the road to restoration. And so because Peter had publicly denied Christ, Jesus is now giving him an opportunity to remedy that situation. So Jesus asked Peter, do you love me more than these? There's a question as to what these refers to. Was it the fish? Was it the fishing boat or the fishing enterprise or the fishing business? Perhaps. But I think the best explanation, not that, I think the best explanation is that Jesus... Is asking him, Peter, is your love still superior to these other disciples' love? Because before, Peter claimed to love Jesus more than all these other disciples. But what I hear in the question is, what about now, Peter? Are you still going to say that you love me more than those disciples? Because the last time I checked, they didn't deny knowing me. Ouch. I think this is uncomfortable. Jesus is revealing the pride that led to the fall of Peter. But Peter responds, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he takes out the comparative. He doesn't mention the other disciples. He just sticks with, Lord, you know that I love you. So Jesus says, feed my lambs. But then we see verse 16. and He said to them a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to them, tend my sheep. He said to them the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. So Jesus says, feed my sheep. You catch what is happening? Jesus not only has recreated the scene of Peter's first call and now his denial. He's now using this to establish his restoration. In repeating the question three times, Jesus is asking Peter To do the hard work of facing his own failures, considering what it says about their relationship. Jesus is asking Peter to examine his heart, to declare his loyalty. But to also strip away any sense of pride or comparison or self-sufficiency that might still be lurking in the background, in the past. Peter had been so bold as to argue with Jesus. But now, Peter is left wholly reliant on the power and knowledge of Christ. He says, I got nothing. I can't. There's nothing I can do, Jesus. You know everything. You see my heart. You know that I love you. And this is where Peter needs to be. Humbled. Humbled. At the feet of Jesus, knowing he is in desperate need of his grace. Some will talk about how there's a change in vocabulary in language between Jesus and Peter. And they talk about the Greek word for love and one being agape and one being phileo. I don't think any of that is relevant or the point. Plenty of people disagree and it's valid interpretation. But I don't think the point is describing the quality of. Of Peter's love, I think Jesus is getting at the object of Peter's love. Peter must deny himself in order to truly embrace Christ. He can't say he loves God in any way if he is still at the center. And when he is asked a third time, it says Peter was grieved He was hurt having to answer this question over and over. And so we might ask, well, why? Why would God allow Peter to experience this pain? Is he just being cruel? Well, I don't think so. We already explained how he needs to say it three times to fit with the three denials. But I think there's also a truth in people need to face and be broken over their sin in order to truly deal with its root. And Jesus was emphasizing the need for Peter to dig deep, to open his heart and be truthful. This is why Paul writes of a godly sorrow that, lead, that produces repentance, that leads to salvation. Peter's sin was rooted in pride and unfaithfulness. And what Jesus was asking for was a true and complete surrender. And he's helping Peter get there. The same is true for you and me. We are going to have to face our failures, our insecurities, our sin. Whatever is keeping us back from full surrender to God, because that's what he asks of every one of us. There may be someone here today who needs a meeting like this with a Savior because they're stuck in their sin or their past failures. The only way towards restoration is through admitting your need and facing your failures in front of Christ. And maybe you're here, and maybe this is more likely, that you don't feel like your failures are dominating your life, but you know it is affecting your life. Problems at home, suffering, trials, anger, substance abuse. You don't you don't think that you need a complete restoration, but you know something's off. And if that's true of you, I have a name tag to give you, and it says Peter. Because that's exactly what Peter thought thought he truly loved the Lord. He wasn't, I don't think, lying to Jesus when he said, I'll never fall away. But what happened? His failure had revealed something inside him that he didn't know was there. And Jesus had to confront him with his failure in order so he could see himself truly. And so then he could surrender his failures to Jesus. But it's also important to note that Jesus isn't focused on the past. He's not trying to bring all the details back and and wade through all the stuff. No, he's asking Peter a present question, not did you love me? He's saying, do you love me? Peter's past failure had already been resolved on the cross. What Jesus was asking now was, where's your heart, Peter? Do you love me today? And this is true for you and me. It's not so much about the past. It's not about how many times you failed or how much you failed. The question is, do you love Jesus today? Are you utterly dependent on him or are you trying to do life in your own strength? The prerequisite for restoration is answering the question, do you love me when Jesus asks? And the good news is that the grace of Jesus is as much available to us today as it was to peter we know that jesus accepts this confession of peter because of how he responds to peter and here's our last truth this morning restoration leads to a realized purpose jesus wasn't there just to boost peter's self-esteem he was there to reinstate and to commission peter to a greater purpose he wanted peter to realize his purpose which was to Feed the sheep, tend the sheep. Jesus was calling Peter to shepherd his church. And how would Peter know how to shepherd his church? Well, he would follow the example of Jesus, the one who showed him how to love in the first place. We also see that this leadership, this new commission, this new purpose would not come without a cost. Verse 18 continues, Truly, truly, I say to you, When you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. You lived for yourself, Peter. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This was a reference to Peter's death, which was going to be crucifixion. Jesus is warning Peter, you're going to be tested again. There's going to come a time that fulfilling and realizing this purpose is going to cost him his life. Church history tells us that Peter stood faithful. And in fact, he was crucified, but he asked to be crucified upside down because he didn't consider himself worthy to be put to death in the same way of Jesus. And so the next natural question that comes is, would you die for Jesus? But you know, that's not the question that Jesus was asking. And although that's a relevant question, I don't think that's, the typical question that Jesus would have for you or for me this morning. The question is not, will you die for Jesus? It's, will you live for Jesus today? Will you live for Jesus today? Because I think it's actually harder to live for Jesus day by day than to die for Jesus. When life is good and easy, when when everything seems to be going okay, and yeah, you might have sin over here, you might have problems over here, but you've got it put together and you come to church and you do all the things, no big deal. That's not living for Jesus. That's living for you. And Jesus is saying, do you love me? How do I know if I love Jesus? If you love me, you'll obey my commandments. The question is, will you live for Christ today? It's humorous. We get to see the humanity of Peter one more time. It's verse 20. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them the one who had also leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? So, a.k.a. John. Peter's talking with Jesus. He looks behind him. He sees John. He just heard he's going to die by crucifixion. So naturally, he does what I probably would have done. Verse 21, when Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Well, Lord, what about him? What about this man? And so Jesus says, If it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me in essence Jesus is saying Peter whatever's going to happen to John is none of your business you don't need to know I'm not concerned with John I'm talking to you what you need to know is will you follow me and so we've come full circle Luke 5 the calling of Peter Jesus asked Peter follow me and now here Peter is on the path to restoration and he asked the same question. He says, you follow me. This is an important message for you and me to hear today. These are universal truths for everyone who claims to follow Jesus. Restoration always begins with grace. It's always where it starts. Restoration requires you facing your failure. You have to deal with sin, and you have to deal with failure. And restoration is should lead to a realized purpose. But this is where we get a little differentiated. Our ultimate purpose is the same. Glorify God, make disciples. We talked about that last week. But how you realize your individual purpose is going to be unique to you. This is what Jesus was explaining to Peter. Peter, i got plans for John, and it doesn't affect you. I mean, I don't know. Maybe I'll let him never die. Maybe he's going to live forever till I come back. He's like, that's not the point, Peter. The point is you need to be focused on you. And so I don't know what your specific purpose is on this earth. I know it's going to result in the glory of God, result in your good for your good. It's going to result in making disciples, but it's going to look very different. I'm not called to be Peter neither are you. You're not called to be John. You're not called to be Pastor Keith or me or anyone else but you. Don't worry about other people. Worry about you. Do you love Jesus? Will you follow him? When Jesus says, you follow me, the verb tense is, you keep following me. This is not a one-time thing. This is a continual following of Christ day by day. Jesus wants Peter. And what he wants for you and for me is not to be consumed with the past, not to be consumed or worried about what other people are doing or thinking, but to focus on realizing the purpose that God has given you grace. This is how we ultimately live a life of significance, by following Jesus, by loving Jesus. There's great hope in these verses because even though Peter had been a monumental failure, Jesus isn't focused on his performance or what he has done or even so much what he will do. He's focused on knowing Peter's heart. Peter, do you love me? Peter, will you follow me? He knows Peter won't be perfect. Go read Galatians 2. Paul has to correct him because he was wrong. But he doesn't expect us to be perfect. The test is of the heart. After my failure at Baylor, I came home angry. I blamed everybody and anybody. It was the school's fault. It was the government's fault. It was the Air Force's fault. It was teachers' fault, it was my parents' fault. What was the real cause of my failure? Me. I was missing out on my purpose. I was living for myself. I was running from God. God had to do for me what he did for Peter. He had to confront me with my own sinfulness and strip away my pride, my self reliance, so that I could truly see myself. And in truly seeing myself, it was only then that I was able to begin to see clearly, to go to God for forgiveness, to know his grace, and then to begin to repair some of the damage that I had done. But what I'm also learning is that this isn't just a one-time restoration that happened back in like the summer of 2006. That This is a continual process of humbling myself Of analyzing my heart, letting the Spirit transform me little by little, one degree at a time. It's not just a one-time restoration. This is a continual posture of the believer. And so my prayer for us this week is that we would take a moment. That we would take a moment and consider how we would answer Jesus. If he invited us to breakfast... Looked us in the eye and said, do you love me? If there is any hesitation in our response, if a fear or a failure comes to your mind, if you get that sinking feeling in the pit of your stomach, my prayer is that we wouldn't try to run or hide or diminish or justify, but that we would simply open up our hearts to him, experience his love and his grace. The prayer is that we would run to him for restoration. So that we might realize our purpose. In his mission. Will you pray with me? Now, Lord there's a lot. And I'm thankful it is not dependent on me. And you are the one. Who has paid for my sin. And who has promised grace and forgiveness. But Lord, I pray you would help draw our hearts closer to you, that we would know and experience your love, that when we realize we have failed, that we wouldn't run from you, but that we would simply come to your feet, sit under your mercy, say, you know everything. I need you. You know my heart. Lord, may we we rest in your finished work. May we strive to be a part of your mission. May we know our purpose. May we seek to be restored and walk with you day by day. We pray in your name. Amen. May God bless you as you grow in your walk with him this week.